that'll help us get back to the topic of evangelism and what it might mean to share the deposit in our life with someone else. So let's begin by looking at the kind of initial uh, charge or the initial call to evangelism. And to do that, we're going to look at Jesus' final words. So after he was resurrected, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago on Easter. After Jesus was resurrected, he had a number of different appearances to the disciples. And in one of those appearances, he gives them a sort of final charge. This is what I want you to do. And that is recorded for us in Matthew chapter 28. So the very end of Matthew's gospel, if you have a Bible, if you would open your Bible or open your phone, your Bible app, and go to Matthew chapter 28, and I'm going to begin reading verse 16, and I'm going to go through verse 20. So Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. If you grew up in church, depending on actually what church you were a part of, but for some of you, you grew up in a church tradition for whom, among whom this passage will be very familiar to you. So others of you, not so. Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20, and sometimes we do this at Gateway. So let's go old school, and out of reverence for God's Word, would you stand with me? This is how Matthew ends his account, his biography of Jesus. This is fascinating. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, therefore, as a result of that, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, of course, I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. You can be seated. I mean, first of all, uh, they gathered at the mountain that Jesus told them to go to. They gathered together, and some doubted, which just is another one of those little details, isn't it, in the story that lets you know, you know, they, I don't know, they might have gotten it wrong somehow. They might not have experienced what they thought they experienced repeatedly as in the resurrection of Jesus. But that kind of detail, you look at other comparative text and historical narrative from the ancient Near East, from Rome, from Greece, you don't get that kind of detail. You don't get that kind of detail from one of the followers of the the leader. They believed, but some doubted. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. So in other words, I'm the man. At this point, I can make happen what I want to make happen. Here's what I want to make happen, and he's already teed them up for this. I'm going to build my church. Awesome, Jesus. I'm going to build, and church, really, that word just, when Jesus used it, it meant gathering. I'm going to build the gathering of my students. I'm going to make that happen. Awesome, Jesus. How are you going to make that happen? So here's the deal. I want you to go. There are two main verbs in this little section. Go and make disciples. That's the giddy-up. That's the gist of what Jesus is saying. I want you to go. I want you to move out beyond yourself. I don't want you to just sit back and wait for people to come to you. It's about actively looking 
for opportunities to share the deposit that I've placed in your life. Because what I've done in your life is good. And it's going to get better. You lean into me. The more you lean into me, the better it's going to get. And I want you to share that with others. Because it's awesome. You know, why wouldn't you? So I want you to go. I want you to go out. And I want you to make disciples. I want you to make students of mine. I want you to allow me to work through you so that other people are turned into followers of me. I don't just want admirers. I don't just want people who think, wow, that Jesus, he's great, loving, awesome, great example. I want students. I want followers. And this is going to be guys of all nations, and that would have been a shock to them. And thank you, Jesus, for you know, that, and for God's heart, that this would be all nations, and, and not just the Jews, for instance. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to baptize them. In other words, I want you to initialize them. I want you to have a commemoration and a celebration. You're in. You've made the decision to be a follower of Jesus. Awesome. And I want you to commemorate them into this kind of Trinitarian idea of God. That God is Himself a community. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I want you to initialize them into that process. And then I want you to teach them Everything I've taught you. And I'm going to be with you. You're not alone in this. So this is the beginning of evangelism. Alright, so what is evangelism? Interestingly, that top line up there after what is evangelism, that's euangelion. That's a Greek word. The two G things there are like two... What is it? They do that in Spanish too, where they put the two letters together and one of them becomes like an N sound. And that's where we get our word evangelism. Can't you see it? So it comes from the Greek euangelion. And euangelion, you cannot see it, some of you are saying. Imagine that you can see it. The word euangelion actually means good news. Or it's where we get our word gospel. And so what they believed that Jesus had commissioned them to do, had charged them to do, had told them to do, they believed that he had told them to go share the good news, to go euangelize the people around them, whoever they were in relationship with. So again, that's brought into the European languages and into English. That's where we get our word evangelism. And that's essentially the process of sharing with other people what you believe God has done in your life. Again, some of you have heard the term evangelical before. That's a description typically of the people who believe that we should go evangelize. You've heard the term used of someone, usually somebody with bad hair and a white suit on television, called an evangelist. And that's someone who does that stuff in front of lots of people, usually. Or maybe one-on-one. It's all related to this idea of telling others the good news that God loves them and has bridged the gap that separated them from himself and Jesus. I think there are two problems with the way that I have understood evangelism over my time and my own process of coming to know God and learning about sharing his love with others. Two problems with the way I've understood evangelism. And and I'll bet you if you've been around the church for a long time, actually I'm speaking today more to people who've been around the church for a long time than those of you who are fairly new. For some of you who are fairly new to this, this is one of those topics that's 
awesome, good for you, you haven't learned any bad habits. Uh, But for me, there have been two problems in the way that I've understood evangelism over time. One is, the first problem is, with Jesus' charge to go. Usually I've thought of evangelism as getting people to come. You know, come to church. Man, we're going to have somebody tell their story today. It's going to be awesome. So you need to come to church. You need to come to Gateway. Or you need to come to me. Come over to where I am. The second problem with my view of evangelism, and I'm going to spend a little bit more time on this, is that I've not taken seriously Jesus' charge to make disciples. Let me tell you what I mean. For me, there have been three primary models, three primary examples that I think of. The first thing that comes to my mind when I think of evangelism in my life, three experiences that I've had with evangelism. The first one was years ago at a church in um, North Carolina. They did a program, and I was pretty new in being really serious about my connection to God at this point. And they had a program they called Evangelism Explosion. I don't know if any of you did this, but this program was really popular in churches. This was a very large church. This program was really popular in churches in the late 70s and early 80s, and throughout the 70s, actually. And the way the program works is the church will gather a list of visitors. Maybe you came to an event we had. You know, like at Gateway, we have a mother-daughter tea and a father-daughter dance. Maybe you came to one of those. Or maybe your child came to some youth event or some kids event, and your name got on our list somehow. Or maybe your child came to Gateway one Sunday, visited, spent the night with a kid who went to Gateway and visited, and we got your name from Kidstown. So the evangelism explosion people came in and collected all of these names for the church, and then we had, I don't remember, a two or three day seminar on how to share your faith with someone. And the gist of the sharing, the heart of the sharing was, you know, we take these names Rob and Evie Showers, they visited Gateway. Rob brought his daughter to the father-daughter dance. And so those of us who came to the evangelism explosion, we would be given this list of names of people who had visited Gateway. And so I've got Rob and Evie Showers. I'd call on the phone. Hey, uh, Rob, this is Ed Allen, and I'm calling from Gateway Community Church and just wondering if we could come by for a visit. And this was the late 70s, early 80s, that was culturally a little more acceptable at that point. Plus, it was North Carolina, and it wasn't Northern Virginia. So Rob would be embarrassed to say, I don't have time, go away. But he would say something like, which is what we would get now. But he would say, sure, when could that be? How about, you know, tomorrow night? All right, awesome. Come over after dinner for a real quick conversation. So we go over, and we've been trained in this seminar to... Rob and Evie, it's so nice to meet you. Look, thanks so much for coming to the father-daughter dance. How was it? Yeah, I noticed you weren't a very good dancer. Ha, 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 chuck, chuck, chuck. Well, anyway, you know, Rob, we're here because we've been praying for you and just kind of concerned about where you are spiritually. And I was wondering if I could ask you a question. We can't say no to that. So you say yes, and I say, Rob, if you were to die today, do you know where you would go? (laughs) Well, he smokes. And so, conversation would ensue, hopefully. (laughs) This is evangelism explosion, so we would go in and try to 
insert, you know, a religious moment into this conversation with Robin Evie. Another model is we had a guy years ago, Diane and I lived in Boston for a number of years and pastored a church up there. We lived in the city, very crowded part of Boston, and there was a guy who had a ministry, and this wasn't part of our church, but he had a ministry into neighborhoods like ours. It was awesome. He bought an old ice cream truck, complete with the speaker on top. And so he would all, for like, well, here it would be eight months, but in Boston it was like a week and a half when you had good weather. He would drive around in neighborhoods like ours, and he would make announcements. So he would partner with local churches, and he would tell them, while I'm doing this, you go out and canvas. And just say, kids, come. So he'd go, to, and the kids are bored. They're on the street, and he'd drive this truck around. Uh, magic trick and special prizes for all kids that show up. Going to get a great story. We're going to be on the corner of uh, 4th and Shelton. 4th and Shelton in 20 minutes. All kids, there's going to be a magic trick and special prizes. Given. Kids would flock. And he would just lay out a mat. And he would stand up in front of the kids, and then he'd do a magic trick. And then he'd do this thing with ropes, and he'd say, you know, this is how some of us think about our lives, and here's one short little rope, and here's a medium-sized rope, and here's a long rope, and this is the list of bad stuff we've done in our lives. And, and kids, which one of these things, people do you think God likes the most? And they'd say, the one with the short list. And he'd say, yeah, that's not really how God looks at it. And he would open up his hands and the, the, it would be the reverse. Something like that. I can't remember what he did. And he'd say, what, what's more important, kids, the trick or the truth? And, and they knew what to say. The truth! And he'd say, yes, the truth is that God loves you. It was awesome. It was a little evangelistic effort for little kids. During the winter months, he would preach in the subways. So we used him a few times in our neighborhood. And, you know, built a relationship with this guy. And one winter in Boston, he said to me, you know, Ed, you should come with me. And I said, you're out of your mind. No, look, I'm not going to ask you to do anything. Just come and watch. So a few times I went with him. And it was pretty incredible. He would stand in a super freaky crowded subway station in Boston. Honestly, he would wait until he heard someone take the Lord's name in vain. And this is the subway track right here. Here's the yellow line that you're not supposed to cross over. So we would just be standing in the back, and I would be thinking, please, Jesus, don't let him say anything, please. (laughs) And then somebody would say, you know, oh, GD. And he would go, you know, I've heard some of you today take the Lord's name in vain. There are hundreds of people here. And now he's screaming really loudly. At least I'm thinking talk quietly. But he's really loudly, and I just want... You know, I feel like I have the right to uh, use his name uh, in honor. And so I want you to know that Jesus told us that the thief came to steal and to kill, but he came to give us life abundantly. And I feel like that's available to you today. If any of you would like to know more about it, I've got cars. And then the subway would come. And the doors would open and people would knock him out of the way and walk onto the subway. Seriously. And he would do this all winter long. A third model for me was tracks. Some of you had this experience before. You've seen it, the the little leaflets or pamphlets that they make, which various forms share, you know, God's story with someone. And the idea is you try to work the conversation to such a point that, well, you know, I've got something I'd like to go through with you. Let me show you. And 
seriously, sometimes these things are like, you know, you pull it out and you said, hey, Ashley, I, uh, how's it going? You know, and after a while, a conversation comes around. You know, Ashley, I got, so you mind if I share something with you? And I bring it out and it says, you're going to hell or something like that. <laughs> the best one that I've ever seen is produced by Campus Crusade for Christ, which is a campus ministry to people on college campuses. Krista Eagle is on staff for Campus Crusade for Christ. And they, years ago, they produced a, a track that's still in circulation today. It's called The Four Spiritual Laws. And they basically, they just give you the laws, they give you principles that direct someone's mind toward kind of understanding the basics of God's plan and the universe. So law number one, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And then there's scriptural support for this. Law number two, humankind is sinful and separated from God. There's just this distance. Therefore, we cannot know and experience God's love and plan for our lives. Law number three, Jesus Christ is God's only provision for our condition, our sin. And through him, through Jesus Christ, we can know and experience God's love and the plan that he has for us. And then law four, we must individually receive Jesus Christ as Lord. We must say yes to that. Then we can know and experience God's plan for our lives. So the idea is, and, and the way Campus Crusade has used this over the years, for years and years, I don't, know if they, I don't think they still do this, but for years and years they would give Campus Crusade kids at local college campuses training, and then they would go on summer mission trips, and they would go to places like, you know, they go during spring break, and they go to places like Fort Lauderdale, where people go to oil up and just wait for someone to come talk to them about religion. That's what most of those... <laughs> That's what most of those people are doing at Fort Lauderdale. And so they would go out on the beach with kids who were hungover and walk up to them and say, hey, can I share something with you? Sure. You know, they're thinking it might be drug paraphernalia. And instead, they bring out something that says, these are four principles, honestly, that have changed my life. Would you be interested in hearing about that? Okay. And then you go through the pamphlet. Third model. That was the third model. Okay, now look. These models have the advantage of answering Jesus' call to go. They're not doing. They have the advantage of that. Can I step on our toes for a minute? Especially those of us who are really involved at Gateway. They're not saying, hey, let's put a lot of effort into building a building and hopefully a lot of people will come to us. They're answering Jesus' call to go, to put our lives into the life of people who are far from God and hurting. These models do an excellent job of recognizing that there is truth that must be heard, understood, and received if we're to build a right connection with God. I'm going to repeat. There is truth that must be heard, understood, and received if we are to build a right connection with God. And I may be saying that today to someone who has never received that truth. And I would love to have a conversation with you about it. Or there are a number of people here who would. Because there is truth that you must, I'm convinced, understand and receive and believe if you're going to have a connection with God. And you can't be what God designed you to be without having that connection. These models do an excellent job of recognizing that. But for some of us, these models may have led us to believe, don't miss this. So, zero in. 
For some of us, these models have led us to believe that Jesus' call to us was a charge to dispense truth. But that's not exactly right. Jesus' call was a charge to make disciples. And making disciples requires a relationship. I'm going to repeat that, and Jonathan's going to put it on the screen for you. Making disciples can only happen in the context of a relationship. Jesus didn't call us to go tell someone truth. He called us to make disciples. And now our next slide, Jonathan. The Christian life is not primarily about believing the right things. It's primarily about loving the right way. You can't love the right way without believing the right things. But we can't make our goal getting people to believe the right stuff. Believing the right stuff will not necessarily change how we relate to God and others. And I'm a believe the right stuff kind of guy. But it's not the point. It serves the point. We're supposed to love better. We're supposed to relate better. Bottom line, over the course of my life with God, I've tended to think of evangelism as finding a nice, comfortable place and encouraging others to come to me so I can convince them to believe what I believe. So, what I've tried to do is find a great place like Mercer Middle School. That's awesome. You know, we got seats. It's an auditorium. I can stand up front and talk compellingly. We can make the lights really dim usually. And, you know, we shine a spotlight on exactly the right spot, and it's me, and it's terrific. (laughs) It's terrific. And we can do this. And let's get them to come. Oh, that's not good enough. Let's build a sexy building on Ghost Ring Road. We'll knock them out. It'll be great. And we'll put a big sign up that says, Coming soon, Gateway Community Church, and they will come. It's awesome, and they will. But that's not what Jesus told us to do. He didn't tell us to get people to come to us so that we can convince them of our truths. He told us to go and make students of his. So, circle that, pause, and let's go over here for a second. Marcus Buckingham is one of these guys who's an economist and a sociologist, and he's written a lot of stuff on business. He's written a lot of stuff on management and leadership. And Buckingham, he used to work for Gallup polling organization, just gathering data and telling us, organizing stuff that we already know and putting it in ways that make us go, wow, that's cool. And he's done that here. So what Buckingham did is he's you know, gathered together lots of information on how engaged we feel at work and work performance as a result of how we are engaged at work. And he's kind of put that together in sort of a talk that helps people be better managers. So Buckingham says that voluminous amounts of research have been done, data has been gathered that has identified the things that make us feel engaged at work. And here's how they did it, interestingly. Apologize for this detail, but the way they do it is they find companies that are very, very productive. They're knocking it out, and the people love working there, and they're really engaged. They're making money hand over fist, and people show up for work, and they never leave. They take those companies, and then they find companies where people are getting injured, and they hate it and they hate their managers, and they never get anything done, and they're not making any profit, and they survey both of those companies. And they ask hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of questions. Agree or disagree? And the questions where these people strongly agree and these people strongly agree, they throw them out. 
Those questions don't differentiate. But the questions where these people strongly agree and these people strongly disagree, well, that's a money question. And they've realized that there are three categories that people must have in their life, three ways, three things, three themes that must be satisfied in order for you to feel engaged at work. And those three areas where people have to get satisfaction in order to feel engaged at work are competence, so you've got to know what you're doing, and you've got to feel like you're good at it. Second is focus. You've got to be able to focus on what you really like and what you're good at. You have to be able to spend a significant amount of time doing that at your work. And you have to have the capacity to focus. And then third is confidence. You've got to feel good about what you do and feel like it makes a difference. I think this is really fascinating. Lots of polling organizations... 29% of us feel like we're working in our sweet spot. And by the way, that's one of the highest in the world. So good for the 30%, but for the 70%, not so much. 55% are pretty neutral. Eh, I could take this job or leave it. 16% of us are flat out bitter. (laughs) We're either ready to leave or we're actively working against the company that we work for. Towers Perrin is another polling organization. For them, the, the data was a little more bleak. 17% of us, they said, are uh, working in our sweet spot. 64% are neutral. 19% of us are bitter. So, you know, let's take the average and we'll say roughly what? 22, 23% of us are working in our sweet spot. When in your life have you been closest to your sweet spot professionally? And for those of you who are in school, what class is it? where you're in your sweet spot, or what time of year? When are you in your sweet spot? And for those of you who are working and professional, when is the time in your life, it might have even been college, when were you closest to your sweet spot? In theory, a certain percentage of you should have been able to say, you know, right now, and good for you. You know, what occurred to me this past week, I was looking at this, again, looking at this video teaching I have this on video with Marcus Buckingham, and I was looking at this with uh, Jonathan Miller and Jordan and uh, George Gahungu, and it occurred to me that there is a spiritual component to this. Or let me say it differently. There's a spiritual complement to this. Think about it like this. What if we were to think of competence as spiritually knowing the right way to live, knowing what God is like, what life with him involves and we know this through training and equipping what if we were thinking about focus as concentrated on God's spirit and God's desire for me and for my life and this happens through my personal discipline and through being led by the spirit learning what that means and growing in that and I'm focused on that in my life Confidence. What if we thought of confidence as having the faith to know who I am and where I'm headed because of my connection to him and being filled with his spirit so that what I feel and what I think are informed by his presence. I have faith that he's active in my life and that's what drives me and it drives me positively and I feel good about who I am because of my connection with him. Okay, here's the money shot. See the sweet spot in the middle. 
the place where I'm understanding who God is and what his intentions for me and what's best for me and who I really am. And I'm able to focus on that and I'm able to live out of that. And I'm led by his spirit. And that becomes for me the place of focus. And I feel faithful and confident about my life and positive about where I'm headed, purposeful, and I have meaning. What if we were to think of evangelism as being used by God to lead people to their spiritual sweet spot? What if we were to think of evangelism as being used by God to help people find their God-given design, their authentic self, the person that God made them to be? What if we were to think of evangelism as helping them understand how to be fully engaged with God, with others, and with their own life? We're not imposing anything on them. We're steering them toward what God made them to be. What if we were to think of evangelism as helping people find their meaning and their purpose because of a connection with God? All right, I'm not saying that we're leading people to whatever truth works for them. I believe there's absolute truth. I don't believe that you can have a connection with God without understanding and receiving that truth. Truth about reality, truth about how to live our life, truth about God. We've got to understand and we've got to receive this truth in order to be everything that God created us to be, but this truth can't be imposed. We're there to assist people in the discovery process. And I don't know about you, but for me, so many times, the evangelism models that I've had in my life, what I'm really doing is I'm answering questions that people aren't asking. So, of course, they're not responding. But everybody wants to find their personal sweet spot. And deep down inside, they know it. And we're directing them toward that because that's where God's going to meet them. Let's end. This will mean the evangelism process will be more about asking questions than about pronouncing truth. So, tell me about you, John. How, where'd you come from? How'd you, what? You're from Alexandria. What, what elementary school did you go to? How hilarious. What was that like? Who were your parents? That's awesome. What happened after that? Okay, that must have been a challenge. And sooner or later, we began to unravel, right? The disappointment or the hurt or the pain or what is preventing them from acting and living out of their sweet spot. We're still doing it with one another. It's called discipleship. It's a process. It's not a decision. I grew up in the kind of tradition, and if this doesn't make sense to you, don't worry about it, but it will to some of you. I grew up in the kind of tradition where I grew up going to church a lot. And at the end of every service, there would be what was called an invitation. And the minister would stand up and offer for people to come down front if they wanted to join the church or if they wanted to become a Christian. And then we would sing usually some compelling emotional hymn, and people may or may not come forward and respond. And if some young person came forward and responded, parents would typically be very, very excited and 20 years later, that young person might be living all out full tilt for hell. 
But the parents could say, you know, at least they made a decision. Jesus did not tell us to go get people to make decisions. He told us to go make disciples. And that's about you and I leaning more and more effectively into our sweet spot and helping others find that. Listen, if you're outside of faith this morning, if you're in that part of your journey, thank you so much for coming. I want to challenge you. I don't think you can find your sweet spot, not really, unless you're connected to him. You live in Northern Virginia in a very expensive area, so you've done a pretty good job of making it up, but you know, you know deep down inside, you can't. You can't be what God designed you to be without that connection. It just doesn't happen. And I'm telling you, there's help in finding that from somebody else who struggles with it as well. And that's what evangelism is. This will make the process of evangelism more about the real needs of the hearer than about the arguments of the speaker. It will be about the real self of the hearer and not about our idea of what they should be. We'll be helping them find their God-given design. This will make the process of evangelism more of a process than a decision. This will mean that evangelism will be about being used by God to build Jesus' followers and not building a conversation to the point where they say, I agree. Awesome. Let's pray. Okay, now you go and live your life. And a year later or five minutes later, they're going, what happened? Thinking about evangelism this way can help us make it more about sharing our God's story than about declaring truth. It's about declaring truth. Yes. In the context of our God story, I recently heard of a woman from Gateway who met a mother, already knew, but remet, at a soccer game, watching their kids play soccer. And how you doing led to not good and tears. You want to have coffee? Sure. And more tears. That's evangelism. I heard recently of someone who met another person at a health club. And it became apparent quickly that this other person is not living in their sweet spot. You want to go to Starbucks and talk about it? Sure. So the process of evangelism began. It's not an advertisement for Starbucks. I recently heard of a family here at Gateway. These are Gateway people asking a neighbor over to dinner. And during dinner, they asked, what was your religious upbringing? That led to a fascinating conversation about disillusionment and bitterness with and toward the church. Wow, that must have been tough. And the process of evangelism began. I believe this is usually the way God's Spirit moves his people in evangelism. I think that's what evangelism is. Let's pray. Father, we give you ourself and our effort over these next, well, not our effort, our focus, I guess. Over these next several weeks, we ask that you would grow us as a group of people, as a community, 
grow us up, mature us in the idea of knowing how to really be of help to others and to serve others. And, you know, God, it occurs to me right now that that begins with us being reminded of what you've done for us. It reminds me that we need to be learning and leaning into our own sweet spot, our own story with you, because that's what we have to share. God, I pray for Gateway this morning that you would encourage us, that you would remind us, and draw us near and strengthen us. And then this week, I pray for opportunities to ask questions and to lean in. I pray that you would remind us to go and that we would be available to you. We pray all of this in the strong name of Christ our Lord. Amen.